Today on Something You Should Know, the things you should never do with a power strip. Then the quirks of being human. For example, how humans move in a crowd. And the human phenomenon of phantom traffic jams. And if you were to look at a phantom traffic jam from a helicopter, the traffic jam itself moves backwards down the motorway. And the speed it moves backwards down the motorway is a universal constant, in so much as it's the same speed everywhere in the world. Also, an interesting and seldom discussed difference between men and women. And counting. Numbers and counting may seem simple. And I want people to understand that numbers aren't 100% objective the way we're taught to think of them. They're human judgments, and when people measure or count anything, they have to decide what belongs in the category that they're counting. All this today on Something You Should Know. Hey, a shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You see, I'm what you call a seasonal allergy sufferer. Stuffy nose, watery eyes. If you have seasonal allergies, you know what I'm talking about. I don't sleep as well because I'm all stuffed up. Food doesn't taste as good. Luckily, though, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. Now, I know people with allergies who just, you know, they just live with it. And, well, that's a strategy. But why? If there's relief... Why not try it? Claritin D is designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. Everyone in my house who has allergies takes Claritin D. Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi there. You have picked the perfect day to listen to another episode of Something You Should Know. I promise you it will be time well spent. First up today, this time of year, the holiday season, is a time when power strips come out because we're plugging in lights and decorations and things. And there are some things you need to know about power strips to stay out of trouble. And this advice comes from FamilyHandyMan.com. First, never plug a power strip into another power strip. Not only is it against half a dozen OSHA regulations in a professional setting, it can also cause one or more of the strips to fail or even catch fire. Never use an indoor power strip outdoors. While there are power strips that are designed for outdoor applications, unless the strip's packaging specifically says it's for outdoor, It shouldn't be used outdoors. Never put a power strip under a rug. As electricity moves, electrons generate heat. Normally, it's not a problem, but if you put the power strip under a rug or in a tightly enclosed space, it can create a fire hazard. Never plug beauty tools into a power strip. 
Hair dryers and curling irons and straighteners and other beauty tools all create heat and draw a lot of amperage to generate that heat. Power strips just aren't designed to generate that kind of consistent high amperage. Those beauty tools should always be plugged into a GFCI-protected outlet. Never leave power strips near children. A quick Google search will show you plenty of horror stories about kids putting fingers and toys and forks into outlets. Don't assume they know better. And never get a power strip wet. That should be common sense, but it happens often enough that it bears repeating. Electricity and water do not mix. Don't get your power strip wet or you risk frying yourself and, and everything else that's plugged into the power strip. And that is something you should know. To be a human being and function in the world, well, it's full of interesting and quirky surprises, as you likely know, since you are a member of that human group. Marty Jobson has taken a fascinating look at what it means to be human and found some interesting and surprising things I think you will enjoy hearing about. Marty Jobson is resident science reporter on BBC One's The One Show. He's been working in television for several years, and he is author of the book The Science of Being Human, Why We Behave, Think, and Feel the Way We Do. Hi, Marty. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. So I I think an interesting place to start here is, based on all the research you've done, is how humans behave in a crowd. So this is this is a fantastic bit of science, and I, I was very lucky. I got to speak to and, and and do some work with the guy that that noticed this, and it's a brilliant story he told me. I remember what this is is that if you take a massive crowd of people and you plonk them in a in a space uh, that they are trying to exit from, and the, and the classic example, in fact, this is where it was noticed. It was a it was a Queen concert, and hang on, it was the Freddie Mercury um, tribute concert, and the huge crowd at the end of the concert was all trying to exit through the, the relatively few exits. And if you look at a sand timer, for example, what you see is you see the sand in the middle moves the fastest. If you look at a sand timer as it's running, so as an egg timer, you get a dimple right in the middle, if you think about it. And that's because the sand is moving fastest there and is flowing down in the middle fastest and it's slower at the edges. Whereas if you look at a crowd going through a small gap, which is kind of analogous to a sand timer, you don't see that. In fact, you see the complete opposite. The people who are at the edges move the fastest and the people who are slap bang in the middle, sort of immediately in front of the exit, you move the slowest um, and it takes you the longest to get out of the stadium. And the people who are right up against the walls at the edges, they go the fastest. And it turns out the explanation is simple. When you, when you have sand, uh, the friction of the sand against the glass wall slows the sand down. So the the closer you are to the edges of the sand timer, the slower you go. Whereas, and this is a fairly standard law that that applies to liquids in a tube and all sorts of things like that. But humans, we don't behave like that. We speed up when we're near walls because we, what slows us down in a crowd is interactions with other people. So if you've got people on both sides of you, you're desperately trying not to bump into people you know, all around you, and that slows you down. Whereas if you're up against a wall, you can go faster because 
you're only interacting with people on one side. So if you're literally sort of pressed against the wall, you don't care that you're pressed against the wall. But if you're pressed against another human being, that kind of bothers us. So we that kind of we try to avoid that. So it's this wonderful sort of enigma of of, of how uh, uh, humans behave in crowds, and crowd behaviour is, is is sort of massively important because you know obviously it can be quite dangerous if you have a, a you have to get people out quickly. So it's, it's changed how people design exits and things like that. It's it's a great piece of science. Talk about lying, because I imagine humans are the only or one of the only species that deliberately misstate the truth. And and it's pretty interesting what you say. Um, I, I believe there are examples. I didn't really go into this because obviously this is about being human, but there are examples of, of animals that lie. There's quite a few of them that will deliberately go out of their way to lie and, and, and fabricate uh, falsehoods. But anyway, yes, lying is a fascinating thing. Um, and one of the great things I like is, is that if you ask people, are you any good at detecting lies or are you any good at telling lies? What people generally say is, oh, no, I'm not very good at telling lies, but I'm quite good at detecting lies. So we don't want to admit to being a liar, but we're happy to admit to being really good at detecting lies. And it turns out that both of these are wrong. And essentially, if you sort of average it out, you're just as good as lying as you are as not lying. And it, it, it's, you could toss a die if you're, term, if you're trying to detect a lie and you'd be more likely to succeed actually, than if you try to work it out. We're all rubbish at detecting lies. Um, and um, we're all pretty much average at, at lying itself. But in terms of detecting lies, there is very little you can do from a single statement, be able to establish if someone is lying or not. There are no tells are a bit of a myth. You know, it doesn't matter where your eyes look. It doesn't matter if your palms are sweaty or if you stutter or hesitate. None of those things correlate with lying. Even uh, lie detectors are basically, if you want to detect if someone's lying, you have to make them repeatedly tell you the story. You have to just get them to tell you the thing that you're suspicious about over and over and over and over again and try and make them do it under more and more and more um, there's a phrase called cognitive load, which basically means you've got to try and make their brain do lots of things all at the same time. Because if they're lying, that means they're more likely to slip up and make a mistake. And that's when you can catch them out. So are there any real techniques that can help you pinpoint a liar? I mean, the two tricks that um, I found the most interesting were, number one, you make them recite what they're lying about. Uh, in reverse chronological order or what you think they're lying about. So, you know, if they're recounting some event, you say, okay, now tell me that story, but in reverse chronological order, so backwards. And that's much harder if you're making up the story as you go along. And the other one is you ask them to look at you in the eyes. And we assume, I mean, you might assume that's because, you know, you can see into the the windows of their soul or something and tell that they're lying, but it's not. It's just that when you're trying to think hard to rec recall something, you tend to look away because our brains are so hardwired to look at human faces that if we can see a human face, it actually makes our, br our brains is doing a whole load of work. When we see a human face, it's, you know, we're looking at the expression, we're looking at the features, we're trying to, you know, we're record, we're, you know, oh, do we know this person? Do we, you know, we're doing all this stuff in our heads. 
So if somebody is staring at you when they tell you that the, their statements that you think they're lying about, it makes them do more mental work and they're more likely to make mistakes if they're lying. There's, there's a, some wonderful science in there and uh, there's a lot of mythology as well, which, which is, is fun to sort of bust open a bit. Human beings, like other creatures, we evolve and we change, but generally those changes are very subtle and slow and we don't actually see them. But you say human thumbs are likely to evolve, and, and so explain why. So people of a certain age, over the age, I guess, I don't know, maybe 40 or something like that, if you ask them to go and ring a doorbell, they'll press the doorbell with their first finger. You know, they'll reach out and they'll bing bong, they'll press the doorbell with their first finger. But if you ask younger people to press a doorbell, they'll reach out and they'll press it with their thumb because uh, we've become more thumb dexterous, if that makes sense. We're so used to using mobile phones now and thumb typing and doing stuff with our thumbs that we will become more thumb dexterous. And that is going to change. <laughs> and I'm sure that, you know, over time, we will evolve as having more dexterous thumbs. Talk about death. That's that's certainly a topic. <laughs> uh, Talk about death. Yeah, we're all interested in that because uh, it's all headed our way at some point. Um, you talk about the speed of death and, and the difference between dead, all dead and mostly dead. So go ahead. One of the things I wanted to talk about, because as, a, as somebody who trained as a cell biologist, was this thing called apoptosis, which is a wonderful uh, word. And basically, this is a, a something that happens in cells it's called programmed cell death is its sort of its non-greek name and this is something that we you you sort of think well this is a bit weird and basically what happens to some cells is they undergo essentially cell suicide they it's a very ordered process they go from being sort of alive and healthy to um disintegrating but in a very ordered way they they sort of undergo uh, you know, they sort of compartmentalize all the nasty things that are inside their cells, be that sort of nasty enzymes or, you know, sort of um, uh, bits that you don't want sort of floating around inside you. And they get compartmentalized up into packages. And then the whole cell sort of regularly and very carefully breaks down. And the assumption a lot of people have is that this is some sort of super rare thing that only happens occasionally. But actually, it's happening constantly to millions of your cells you are constantly sort of cells in your body are going through this process of cell suicide. It's really important because you've got to get rid of cells that you don't need just as much as you have to grow cells that you do need. Wait, wait. So explain that. Why, what do you mean by you have to get rid of the cells that you don't need? And the obvious places that you see this is in development. You know, when you're growing the fingers of your hand, for example, they don't, if you imagine how your hand develops, it doesn't develop as a blob that then sort of sprouts five sticks out of it. It starts, imagine, as like a plate-shaped structure. And then the cells between your fingers uh, are sort of removed. They're eradicated. They, they die away. They, they go through this process of apoptosis. So the structure is sculpted by removal rather than by just growth. So this is a, it's a wonderful process. And you start to think about sort of that's sort of on a cellular basis, but when you look at death on a on a whole organism basis, it starts to become well, it's quite interesting because when is when are you dead? What what does death mean? What what when do, what do we die from? 
And really what it comes down to is a failure of homeostasis. And homeostasis is a process that biological organisms have for maintaining an internal environment because the chemical reactions that make up life, let's think of life as a series of chemical reactions, they have to have very specific conditions for them to work. So that's temperature, uh, salinity, you know, viscosity, and all those and various other things that, you know, there's a concentration of the various molecules. Those have to be very carefully controlled. And when that starts to break down, that's what kills you. And actually, you sort of go back and you can look at sort of, well, you think, oh, well, what about heart disease? That's a cause of death. Well, yes, heart disease is a cause of death, but only because when your heart stops, that stops the blood going around, which means that the oxygen levels drop. And it's one of, that's one of those concentrations. It's that internal um, maintaining that internal environment that our bodies are sort of trying to do constantly. And when we cease to be able to do that, that's what kills us. That's what causes cell death. That's what causes brain death. I'm speaking with Marty Jobson, and we're talking about, well, we're talking about the quirks of being human. The name of his book is The Science of Being Human, Why We Behave, Think, and Feel the Way We Do. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Marty, part of being human, it seems, is that we have these common experiences. For example, there is a very common human experience that when you go to the store, the supermarket, and you go to check out, whatever line you pick seems to move the slowest. And I think everybody's had that experience. And it does seem odd that we always pick the slowest line because somebody's in the faster line, but but it's not me. Basically, the reason why the line is longest or it, it is more likely to be longer. I mean, you just think about it. Imagine you're in a, a sort of a, an infinite sort of row of queues at the, the checkout, you know, the cashiers. And there's sort of loads of lines and you're in the middle somewhere you've got a queue on your left and a queue on your right so obviously there's an even chance of each of those lines being the fastest line uh you could be the fastest the queue on the right could be the fastest and the queue on the left could be the fastest and the one third chance of each of those so if you ask yourself what is the chance of one of the the lines being faster than me well it's going to be two thirds because um, there's two other lines. So there's, there's a bigger chance that one of those lines is going to be faster than your line than there is of your line being the fastest. So in other words, there's a, there's a 66% chance that every time you get in the queues at the checkout, somebody else's line will go faster than you. 
And there's only a 33% chance, a one-third chance, that your line will be the fastest. And um, that's the simple bit of maths. But then you start saying, okay, well, why is it that we don't understand that? That gets you into the, 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 the biology of numbers and how we understand numbers and how we understand probabilities. And we're really bad at understanding probability and chance is super bad at it i mean you know um, most people have a terrible understanding of probability but then also psychologically you you don't remember when the queue is quicker when your queue is quicker you only remember the bad stuff you, you don't remember the good stuff that's sort of human nature unfortunately we don't register when things go right we register when things go wrong there's a very simple solution if you want a better chance of your queuing going faster, you have to reduce the number of queues that you're comparing yourself to. So if you go to the queue at the end of the row of cashiers, there's only one person next to you. There's only one queue next to you because you're up against the wall or something. So there's a 50-50 chance that yours is the fastest queue. So you've just improved your chances by going to the edge. <laughs> so it's, it's just simple maths. I'm sure everyone has experienced the phantom traffic jam where traffic slows down for no apparent reason. And so if traffic is slowing down for no apparent reason, it must be, assuming that it wasn't an accident that has since cleared, but it must be just human behavior. It must be the way we're driving or something that is causing slowdowns for no reason. They, they basically just happen when you the road density reaches a certain level. Essentially, what happens is somebody will do something, and it can be very minor, totally trivial. Maybe they change lane. It can be as simple as that. Or they brake suddenly for some reason. And then the person behind them brakes a bit more, and the person behind them brakes a bit more, and it goes on and on and on until somebody has to come to a complete standstill. But the really fascinating thing about traffic jams like this is they have a life of their own. And if you were to look at a phantom traffic jam from a helicopter, the traffic jam isn't stationary. The traffic jam itself moves. So the, the clump of stationary cars moves backwards down the motorway or the freeway. Okay, So it starts out in one place, and then as the cars move from the front, more pile up behind, and gradually that lump of stationary cars different cars moves backwards down the motorway and the speed it moves backwards down the motorway is a universal constant in so much as it's the same speed everywhere in the world, which tells us that it's something intrinsic in human ability to drive the, the automobile that causes this. And um, this, this thing goes backwards down the road. And the simplest way, I mean, people sometimes ask me when I'm talking about this, how do you avoid these traffic jams? There is no way you can avoid them, but you can help your fellow drivers who are on the motorway behind you from avoid them. Um, and the simplest thing to do is to not change lane. Uh, and next time you're on a motorway, just think about this for a second. When you change lane, you are essentially doubling your occupancy of the motorway. So, you know, you've got your single car on the motorway, but where at, at the point you change lane, every time you do this, you are occupying two lanes at some point, which means that you are taking up and nobody else can occupy either of those that space in either lane. So you are taking up two lanes of space 
your car width plus the the gap in front and behind that people have left you're essentially taking up both of spaces on both lanes so you've just doubled your occupancy and that's one of the reasons why this uh, changing lanes causes phantom traffic jams so lastly in our discussion about the quirky things about being human dementia and your teeth so there there is evidence that some of our understanding about dementia and and what causes Alzheimer's disease specifically, because there are different types of dementia, is not quite what we think it is. And there there are sort of some mavericks out there who think that it's got less to do with the standard explanation. The standard explanation, which is to do with um, amyloid plaques in in the brain caused by this rogue protein that's being produced, doesn't quite add up and there's one of these it's one of these bits of science where we keep banging our head against the wall of of trying to understand what's going on and we're not getting anywhere so that people eventually start saying well are we are we just banging our head on the wrong wall should we be looking elsewhere and there's a really interesting piece of research that has to do with the bacteria that causes gum disease It's pretty complicated, so I won't go too deep into this. But basically, there is evidence that localizes this bacteria, or at least the the products of this bacteria, to the bacterial plaques in your brain. And it's just about conceivable that the bacteria that causes gum disease somehow gets into your brain. And that kicks off the process in some people not in others we don't understand there's a lot to be done yet but uh there so the, the sort of the implication is that sort of you know gum health is good for your brain which just seems a bit crazy but there does seem to be a bit of a link there um it's uh, i don't want to put too much emphasis on sort of exactly how much link there is there there is there is still you know sort of other things that are you know good for your brain health and it's not completely stitched up so to speak scientifically but yeah there is there seem to be a link between gum disease and alzheimer's disease and the bacteria that causes certainly one and might be involved in the in the other well this has been fun i i always like poking around and trying to understand what makes humans tick. And it's always interesting to hear the research and get some insight. Marty Jobson has been my guest. He is the resident science reporter on BBC One's The One Show. And he is author of the book, The Science of Being Human, Why We Behave, Think and Feel the Way We Do. There's a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks, Marty. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks for your help. Bye. Bye Bye-bye now. One thing you are probably really good at is counting. You just kind of pick it up as a kid. We learn to count. We count things. We understand the concept of counting. And it turns out counting is actually very important in life. And it's also a bit tricky. Here to explain what that means and why this is important is Deborah Stone. She is a scholar who is taught at Brandeis, MIT, Duke, Dartmouth, Yale and Tulane University, among others, and she is author of the book, Counting, How We Use Numbers to Decide What Matters. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Mike. Very nice to be with you. Well, it's interesting, when I think about counting, I think 
I probably do it a lot. There's a lot of things to count, either, you know, consciously counting one, two, three, four, or just noticing groups of four or five things. Counting, I do that a lot, but I don't think about it a lot. Well, it's interesting that you say that you don't think much about numbers because I think I've asked a lot of people if they remember learning how to count. And I have found no one who remembers learning how to count. Lots of people remember learning how to read. But we think of numbers as something that's just there. Like you said, uh, our parents usually teach us the number of words and how to count things. And when we are in school, we kind of get the idea that numbers, there's just a right answer to how many things there are. Well, and a lot of times there is a right answer. I mean, if, you know, <laughs> Billy has two apples and Susie has two apples, collectively they have four apples. I mean, there's no other answer, right? In order to count, you have to decide what belongs to the group of things that you want to count. And that means that you're making a subjective decision to decide what counts, and therefore your decisions will determine what number you get. So where and what is the concern? I mean, it, it, again, if Billy has two apples and Susie has two apples, they have four apples. So you're talking about something else that isn't quite so clear-cut. I think we've come to a point where we trust numbers. We think they're more objective than words and stories and anecdotes, and we kind of use them as truth meters. So when policymakers say they want evidence and they want to make evidence-based decision-making, they mean they want numbers. That's what counts as data. And I want people to understand that numbers aren't 100% objective the way we're taught to think of them. Uh, they're human judgments. They're based on human judgments. And when people measure or count anything, they have to decide what belongs in the category that they're counting. So give me a real-life example of where this is important. When you count, it's as if you're holding an imaginary clicker in your hand. Each time you see one of the things you're counting, you click. So the clicker reads out a number, and the number tells you how many things there are. That sounds pretty straightforward, but it's not really what happens. The clicker is telling you the number of times you noticed one of the things that you're counting. Say I ask you to look out the window and count the cars that go by. If you look away for a minute or you get lost in daydreaming, you'll miss some cars. So the clicker really only tells you how many cars you noticed, not the number that actually went by. And now I'm going to make it a little spookier. Um, the clicker tells you the number of times you looked at something and said, yup, that's a car. And I didn't tell you whether to count trucks or, or, and buses as cars. So you have to decide which way to go. Are you going to count them or aren't you? And the clicker really tells you how many vehicles you noticed and you decided to count as cars. So now let's go to the ballot booth uh, or the, you know, the election poll. You're a poll worker and you're counting votes uh, for Biden and Trump, let's say. Um, you, so the first thing you have to do is decide whether the ballot is a valid ballot. And will I count the check marks on here as a vote? 
So in other words, the clicker is really keeping track of your decisions. It's not keeping track of how many people intended to vote for this candidate or that candidate, but rather it counts your decisions. So, but a, a lot of it ha- would also, it seems, have to do with how important this is. So when you're having me count cars, if it was really important and if it really mattered, you'd probably write down the, the criteria. You would tell me if I count trucks or buses. If it really mattered, you'd give me more details and tell me how much it mattered and you'd probably get a more accurate count. But if I'm just counting cars that go by and there's no ramifications of that, eh, you know, you'll get a you'll get a pretty decent number, but it may not be a hundred percent accurate. That's a really good point. And the problem comes that we can try to be as specific as possible about say if I'm giving you directions, I hire you to count something I care about or I want to know about. I will try to give you as specific directions as I can. But there were especially for the important political and social problems that we're talking about, like um, health care or productivity or unemployment or how good a teacher is your child's third grade teacher. There's not a completely objective definition of what is unemployment or what is good teaching. Well, that's interesting because, as you say, we're, we're subjective creatures and a lot of things don't really lend themselves to objective black and white, this is the way it is. There's a lot of nuance and, and subjectivity in it, yet we crave objectivity. We want to know that, you know, 80% of people do this or 20% of people don't do that. But people use numbers all the time to support their position, and we all know that people manipulate numbers to support their position. So we want, we have a craving for objective criteria, and I think that we've put a lot of faith in numbers because they satisfy, they seem to satisfy that craving. I think that numbers can do a better job helping us if we understand they do include subjective decisions. Let's take the um, example of unemployment. And what we see is that a lot of people who don't have jobs and paychecks right now don't count as unemployed. Uh, For example, people who've been furloughed don't count as unemployed in the official government statistics. And people who aren't able to work because they're sick or they're injured or they are have a complicated pregnancy, they aren't counted either as unemployed, even though they're not getting a paycheck and they are not working. And they're not counted because in the official definition, in order to count as unemployed, you have to be willing and able to take a job next week if you're offered one. That's the question you'll be asked when when an unemployment survey is done. You might wonder why we have these counting rules that violate most people's sense of what it means to be unemployed, which is you don't have a job and you're not getting a paycheck. And the reason we have these rules is because, like all counting rules, they're established by people in power. And the unemployment counting rules were first established in the 1870s by a Massachusetts commissioner of labor statistics. 
And it, it was a period like what we're in now with a huge um, financial downturn and tons of unemployment. And there was a lot of political protest by unemployed workers. And the commissioner wanted low numbers. So he, because he wanted to um, quell the protests and tell the people they had nothing to complain about. So he asked local cops. No one had ever done an unemployment survey before. And this guy asked local cops to go around and count the unemployed. And he told them to count only men, not women and children, even though most women and children worked on the farms and in factories and, and they were major sources of family income. So people were dependent on them. And the commissioner told the cops, don't count anybody except able-bodied men who really want to work. No whiners, no complainers, and no people who are just lazy. That was his real discretionary decision right there in how to count unemployment. That guy, that Massachusetts commissioner, went on to become the first head of the National Bureau of Labor Statistics, and he brought his attitudes with him. So... The moral of the story is that people count for a purpose. And uh, as you said, they, um, they have their ideas about what is true and they will count they, in a way that gets numbers to show that they're right. The, the commissioner in Massachusetts got low numbers by telling the cops how to count. So that's really the important point. So give me another example, a real life example of counting and the objectivity and subjectivity and how it works. And just another example would be great. When you go to the doctor and you complain that you have a pain, you'll be asked on a scale from one to 10, how bad is it? Where one is, you know, I hardly notice it. And 10 is, I want to jump out the window. I can't stand it. So it's utterly subjective. Pain is a perception. There's no objective way to measure it. Most people I've talked with say they they find that question really difficult to answer when you're in pain. I don't know whether it's a five or a seven or an eight. What, what the heck does that mean, right? Um, just because those numbers are really subjective. And I think when I answer, I think I'm really answering about my pain tolerance. I, I don't know how bad the pain is, but I just know how bad it is to me and how I feel about it. And it turns out that those numbers really help doctors and patients communicate about something that is really hard to put into words. A number of people have told me that the, when they've had really bad pain and the, and the uh, doctors want to put them on uh, OxyContin or something that's really going to make them a space cadet, they understand that if they give a high number the doctor's going to give them more medicine or the nurse. Or but if they, um, and if they don't want more medicine, they know they should say a low number. I've had people tell me, I give numbers in order to communicate or secretly or strategically uh, how much more pain medication I want. So I think this is a, it's an everyday example that you know, most people will encounter at some point in their life. And I think it's a really good example of how numbers can be extremely useful, even though they're completely subjective. One place where we see numbers used a lot is opinion polls. People are asked their opinions about issues or candidates or whatever, 
And often those polls, the results of those polls, turn out to be way off of, of reality. There's a saying in um, measurement that sometimes when we try to measure people, the, our measuring instrument affects the number that we get. People who wear a Fitbit to count their steps, uh, they, they all say that as soon as they put on the Fitbit, they start walking more or climbing stairs to make their goal, right? So the, the fact of measuring themselves or the, the process of measuring themselves stimulates them to change their behavior and change the number that they get uh, because they want a good number, right? So I think public opinion polls are something like a Fitbit in that they, they put an idea in people's head and, and kind of shape the way they think. Let me give you an example, two examples of, um, of questions that have been asked recently in very, very reputable poll organizations. Do you think overall immigrants are a benefit or a burden to the country? That's one question that's being asked. Another one um, that's often asked um, before uh, elections and uh, presidential elections where would you rate blacks on a scale of one to seven, where one is lazy and seven is hardworking? Though both of those questions, I find them very shocking because they really stereotype. Both of them send a clear message. And they, so the, 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 these public opinion polls are trying to find out what the public thinks about these, you know, these two issues. And both questions... As, implicitly tell people before they even open their mouths to answer, it's just fine to stereotype whole groups of people uh, like immigrants or blacks. And so even if you weren't inclined to stereotype like this before, the question when the pollster asks you that, it puts ideas in your head. And, and the question doesn't give you a chance to say, I don't think you can generalize about all immigrants, or I don't think um, you uh, you can stereotype about all blacks. You should you shouldn't do that. So that's an example where I think it's it's really important to find out what the public thinks. The political leaders want to know what we think about issues, and we want our leaders to know. This is an example where I think it's very difficult to find out what people think, and the measuring instrument, the way you choose to count can really affect how the answer that you'll get, the number that you'll get, how many people think blacks are lazy uh, or how many people think immigrants burden the country. But what if you're writing a book about how blacks are perceived in America and you, you hire a pollster to go find out? That seems like that would be a pretty good question because if you want to know how people are perceived you kind of have to ask how people perceive. Yes, that's, it's really good. And, you know, when I was talking about this in class one day with, and one of my students said, if you want to know if white people think that Africans live in trees, she was an African woman, by the way. She said, if you want to find out whether white people think Africans live in trees, how are you going to find out unless you ask them? So that's a really good, uh, you know, a really good point. But I think even if you want to include that question, you could ask other questions that are designed to get people to think differently. But isn't the purpose of a poll 
not to get people to think differently, but to find out how they think now, not to move them to think a certain way that fits what you want them to think. Yes, but if you, but in those questions that I just read you, they are getting people to think a certain way. I mean, they're built into that question is that blacks can be rated on a scale, you know, all blacks can be judged as lazy or hardworking, right? Yeah, well, I don't think I agree with you because it would seem the purpose of the question is to find out what people think. Now, you may not like what people think, you may not like the answer, what they say in response might sound racist, but that's what they think. And I don't think that by asking people a question, you change what they believe. I, I, I don't think people do that. I don't think they hear a question and go, oh, now I can think that about that group. No, you know, no, you no. Think it's the racist. purpose of the question is to ask people to judge whether they think people with a certain skin color are more lazy than people with it. The question is also asked about whites and, you know, other groups too, right? right. So it's asked about a group. And, and I think that it's wrong to, I mean, I, I don't think we can, not wrong, in, it, it is wrong in a moral sense, but I think it's wrong in a factual sense to think that you can make and have an opinion that, um, that, all people in a certain uh, group defined by some characteristic other than their work ethic have a certain work ethic. That seems to me wrong. Well, all of this, all, this entire discussion goes to your point about how counting is, is more complicated and more important than we ever give it credit for because we learn to count as kids and, and accounting we do go and... And yet there's a lot to it, and it's important to pay attention. Deborah Stone has been my guest. She is a scholar who has taught at some major universities in the U.S., including MIT, Duke, Dartmouth, Yale, Tulane, and others. And her book is Counting, How We Use Numbers to Decide What Matters. And you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you, Deborah. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Mike. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. I was looking forward to it, and it... It's fun. An interesting difference between men and women, according to Professor Linda Babcock of Carnegie Mellon University, is that men tend to ask for what they want and women don't. Professor Babcock has researched this and says the problem is that in our culture, if you don't ask, you don't get. So women are missing out on a lot of opportunities simply because they don't ask. The good news is that awareness is a big thing. Once women hear this, typically they get it and they're more inclined to start asking for what they want in their personal and professional lives. As the saying goes, there's no harm in asking and there can be a lot of potential reward. And that is something you should know. The audience for this podcast is pretty big, but we'd like to make it bigger. And you could help if you would share this podcast with someone you know, so they become a listener as well. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.